You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. It's good to have you here. This week we talked about 1 Samuel chapters 7 through 10. We learned that God is king, and when we trust him, he gives us victory over our enemies. But if we're not careful, even the most faithful can forget that the only king we need is God. This teaching covers the material on pages 42 to 59 in the Learner Workbook, available for download at thevillagechurch.net. We pick up here in chapter 7, after just some tough lessons that the people of Israel had to learn last week. So here we are. In the, that very last verse for last, from last week, chapter 7, verse 2, is from the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years is a long time, y'all. And they lamented after the Lord. And you have to remember that, you know, this is on the footsteps of just a dark time for them in general when they had the battle with the Philistines, they were soundly defeated, the ark was captured, um, it was taken, but God on his own, as the ark traveled throughout Philistine, on his own, without any help from the Israelites at all, had victory over the Philistines, and on his own, in his great mercy, came back to them, even though they hadn't been looking for him. I mean, when the ark returns in chapter 6, there's no indication that they had been out searching for it, you know, but he comes back, and um, yeah, that experience... That hard stuff, the hard losses that they faced, the 30,000 men that they lost, 34,000, I guess, if you count the 4,000 before that, led them to this place of repentance where we land here. And if you'll remember from everything that we read last week, those three chapters with four, five, and six with the whole Philistines and the ark, the whole thing, the only time Samuel is mentioned in the whole thing is in the very first verse of chapter four, where it says the word of the Samuel came to all Israel. And then nothing, nothing else from Samuel in that whole long, terrible experience. The whole time that the ark is in Philistia, no Samuel. When it's captured, no Samuel. When it comes back, no Samuel. There's nothing. And yet here he comes up again, and we're reminded of that sequence, if you'll remember from back at the beginning, when Eli's sons were being described. And remember it went kind of back and forth between them. Hophni and Phineas are really bad, but then there's Samuel. Hophni and Phineas are doing terrible things. Oh, but here's Samuel. He's growing in the Lord. And went back and forth and back and forth. And what we see is that Samuel is a picture of God's mercy. He's a symbol of God's mercy to them in the midst of their disobedience. And it's the same here in this chapter. With Samuel being reintroduced in verse 3, we see God's mercy coming to them again. He's going to lead them back to a place of fellowship with the Lord. So let's start there in verse 3. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So what are the Baals and the Ashtaroth doing there anyway? Yeah, they didn't do what they were supposed to do back during the conquest, and they have allowed these things to kind of stay present among them. And instead of casting them out, they are taking them on and being influenced by them. Because if you remember from your homework, what did it say that they were the gods of fertility and military importance, military might, right, Um, and authority over crops? So those are good things, right? Like who doesn't want that? Everybody wants those things. But in taking on these things, you see their lack of trust in the Lord. So they're looking around them, and they're saying, well, that seems to work okay for them. So let's, let's do that. Like, let's do that as well as this. But Samuel is calling them to let go of them. Why? What's the first commandment? Yeah, there should, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's always a lowercase g, because what do we know about God? Is there any other? No, there are no other gods. God is the only God. And so Samuel is calling them to this place of repentance. 
to put these things away from them and to be the people that God has called them to be. So it says in verse five, Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. So who has ever drawn water before? Have you ever drawn water from a well? I haven't. You have. Is that an easy thing to do? It's heavy, right? And it takes some time. So then after you get your bucket of water and you're going somewhere with it, do you care if any of it spills out? Um, I was a kid. (laughs) And it was fun pulling it up, but looking back now, I would have got the job done a whole lot faster if I hadn't spilled it. <laughs> <laughs> if you hadn't spilled so much out. Yeah. So for us, water is kind of an easy thing, right? You go to the sink, you turn on the tap, it comes out. But for them, drawing water would not have been such an easy thing. So this picture here of the drawing out of the water and then the pouring it out seems awfully wasteful right? It's a waste of effort. It's a waste of time and energy, but it's supposed to be a symbol of the pouring out of their guilt, that all their striving after other gods is wasteful, and they're pouring that out before the Lord, and they're seeking forgiveness. They are repenting of their sin. Those are their words. We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, so this seems to be a good time, right? Their, their hearts are turning back to God. Whereas in chapter four, at the end of their battle with the Philistines, we saw that they were just desperate. It was just desolation, right? Huge loss. Um, they are without the ark, without the presence of the God, it, of God, not the God, of God. And it's not good. But here we see them drawing to the Lord once more. And it's a period of restoration and of peace. And that's what they do. They cry out to the Lord, but they're all in one place. So when every movie you have ever watched, when does the villain strike? Like when everyone's all together, right? When everyone's all in one place, it makes it easy to target everyone. And in a sad way, like we know this is true even in modern times because of the types of violence that we see playing out in the world now, right? Shootings at concerts when there's a bunch of people drawn together. Um, That is when people attack. And so all of Israel is gathered together, and Philistia hears about it. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they thought, hmm, now would be a good time to get them because they're all in one place. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines, just like they were afraid of them in chapter 4. They were afraid in both times. But what's the difference between what happened in chapter 4 and what happens here? What do they do with their fear? In chapter 4, when they lost the ark and all that kind of stuff, what did they do? They were afraid, and so they said, hmm, how can we make this better? I know, let's bring God, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, and God will fight for us then. They never prayed, they never sought the Lord, they didn't talk to Samuel, they didn't do any of those things. But in this case, something has changed. They have learned the hard way to seek the Lord above their own futile thinking, I guess, their own best laid plans. And so what, how do they react? They, they go to Samuel and they say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so they've learned that salvation comes from the Lord. They've learned and they're turning to him. And so Samuel does. He cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. So what does that make you think of? The Lord thundered against them. Yeah, like anger, yeah. Um, have you ever heard a tornado described as the finger of God? Something like that? Sometimes. Um, I have heard it described that way, where the very elements themselves are used as God's wrath. Um, not to say that every tornado or every hurricane is God acting out his wrath on people, but that when God thunders against them, this same language is used in some of the other battles that are described in Judges. And that's the kind of imagery it brings up that the weather turns against them. 
there's thunderstorms and lightning and it's kind of crazy and confusing and they're thrown into this kind of mess that the very elements that God is in control of are against the Philistines and keep them from even coming to the battle. And they are caused to run, basically. They're thrown into confusion. Everything's a mess. Their plans are just destroyed. It says they were routed before Israel. And then the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. So what's the difference in this battle and the last one? The Lord fights for them. And it is not Israel who gets the victory. Now they pursue, but it is the Lord who has defeated the Philistines. There's no question of who has done the work here. It's God. And whereas before when they relied on their own strength and their own understanding and their own plans, they were met with defeat and devastation and loss. This time they get victory because it's God who has done the fighting. And what we'll see in these next verses is they get restoration All the lands that Philistia has taken over, all the cities, are restored to them. So what was lost is now gain. They get it back. And peace. It's a time of peace between Israel and its neighbors all these years. It says, Samuel took up a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called its home, called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So what you see is that Everything is as it should be in Israel. This is a picture of the ideal, right? This is what it looks like when God is king. This is what it looks like when God does the fighting for you, when he goes out before you in battle, when you are fully reliant on the Lord. This is what it looks like. You have no need to fear your enemies because the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Isn't that the lesson of Exodus? The Lord will fight for you. He will do this for you. So before, they were trusting in themselves. They brought the ark out as an afterthought. Like, here's our mascot. God's going to fight for us. But now, they know that they can't win without the Lord. They know that on their own, um, there's nothing but defeat ahead. And they have recognized their desperate need for him. They have recognized their guilt. They have poured all of that out before the Lord. And they've returned to him. Because as devastating as that previous loss was... It forced them to see the truth about who they were and who God was and how much they needed him. And so you would think (laughs) that with all of this, that they would say, lesson learned. Let's do it this way from now on. Um, But is that what happens? No. And it's interesting to me that this little tidbit is thrown in here about Samuel taking a stone and setting it up. And the stone's name is Ebenezer. And what does that mean? Hmm? Oh, yeah. The Lord has helped us. Yes, the Lord is our help. And if you went back and looked at the verses that it sent you to in Joshua to talk about the other times that these kind of stones have been set up, they have a purpose. They're to help you remember. Kind of like, you know, our monuments. And the, the Vietnam, the wall the Vietnam War. Why is that there? Why is that big, long black stone there with all those names carved into it? So we'll remember. So we won't forget the sacrifice that was made. And so this is the sort of thing that it was. It was a monument to remember what God had done for them. That God is their help. So that anytime someone saw it, they would be like, hey, what's that for? I mean, kids, if you're with any child ever and they see something like that, I mean, it's not like this little rock that's here. The impression that is that it's a stone, a very large stone. And they say, what is that for? You can say, that's so we'll remember that here the Lord fought for us. The Lord is our help. He is our Savior. But do they remember? They set up the stone because it was supposed to help them to always remember and never forget. But man, people are forgetful. <clears throat> 
And it doesn't take long. Just the span of Samuel's life, really. Which, what, maybe 40 years? I don't know how old he was. But by the time we get to chapter 8, it says Samuel is old and he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, we've already talked about that a little bit, how that was not a good thing, right? And it wasn't good for a couple of reasons. One, they were, they were not good leaders. <laughs> they were corrupt. They were prone to taking bribes. So that's not good. But it's also not good because that's not the way that God had raised up people in the past, that judges were chosen or that Israel's leaders were chosen in the past. It was always God doing the choosing. And so Samuel sets up his own sons and the people respond like, hey, this is not a good thing. Um, we're not down with this plan. They can see that the future doesn't look good. And so they do what people do when they're uncertain of the future and they make a plan, right? They, they decide that this way is not good. And so we need to do something about this. And so they approach Samuel it says, all the elders of Israel gathered together, this is verse 4, and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Because he feels rejected, right? But it's not just Samuel who has been rejected here. Samuel, in his distress, turns to the Lord and he prays, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, they look at their situation. They're thinking, this is not good. What do we do? What do we do? And instead of turning to the Lord again and crying out to him for help, like they did just one chapter before, they look around again at everyone around them. And they say, we want a king like the nations. We want to be like them. They have what we want. And isn't that just the way <laughs> of things? To want to be like everyone else, always. To look at the people who seem to have it all and say, maybe if I do what they do, I'll end up in their position. Maybe if I take their advice or their 10 steps to prosperity or whatever it is that they're offering and do those things, then I'll be like them. You know, we want to be like other people. It's uncomfortable not to be, right? It just is. But the thing about Israel is that they were never meant to be a nation like other nations. They were meant to be a nation that belonged to the Lord. God called them out from all the other people of the earth to be his, to be holy. And the thing about being holy is that it means that you are set apart. Like everybody else is over here, you're here all by yourself. And it can be lonely to be different from everyone else. It can be hard. And so I think we can understand why they would look around and say, those nations, they're doing okay. You know, they've got a good leader. They've got a good government. They know what it's about. And that's what we need. That's what we need. Even though they had just experienced what it could be like, what it should be like when God is your king, they wanted something more. And they were willing to settle for less than God's best because it would make them more comfortable, I think, to have a plan, to know a plan, to know what they were getting into. Because it's hard to trust God, right? When, you know, there's not a king, an actual physical king sitting on the throne that you can take your grievances to or who will be physically present in battle with you, um, it is hard to trust that God is sovereign when you can't see him with your eyes, right? And I think we do the same things in our own ways. Whether it's, you know, trusting God for our future, our own questions, letting our own fears get the best of us, they were afraid. Again, that's the theme that we see throughout this. They were afraid of the future. They were afraid of what might happen if this 
was not the case. If we don't have a king, what's going to happen? You know, if we have to stand a chance of fighting against these other nations, we got to be like them. They've got, <laughs> makes me think of like a football team, you know, like that team has a good quarterback. And if we want to beat them, we need to have a good quarterback, right? And so that's what they do. They beg for a king. Um, but y'all, the thing that I see so much here about God, um, now that I am a parent, I understand it so much more because he does what every good parent would do. When the child comes to you and begs you for something that you know they don't need, that you know that that's not a good choice. Um, gosh, y'all, my kids' decision-making skills are not the strongest. I mean, I don't know about yours. Maybe yours are better than mine. But they see things, usually it's a toy, that everybody else has. When the fidget spinners came out, oh, my gosh. I mean, like, I just refused. Like, I am not spending $20 because when they first came out and you couldn't find them anywhere on a piece of junk. Like, I'm not doing it. No. We are not going to have fidget spinners in our house. But then they would come home from school every day telling me about so-and-so have one or so-and-so have one. Or, I mean, like, just all these people had a fidget spinner. And I was like, we are not going to waste our money on the junk. <laughs> like, it is not happening. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. What's wrong with everybody else? Right? Make me so mad at other parents. What are you thinking? <laughs> If you were a better parent, <laughs> then it would be easier for me to be a good parent. But no. Okay, so everybody else has it. They want it. And so you have the choice, you know, as a parent, how you're going to respond in that instance. You know, for my kids, I was like, well, if you want one, you can spend your own money on it. Like, you can waste your money that way, but I'm not going to. And then they, they did not. They did not waste their money on it in that case. But then there are other times when they just want to do something that's just not a good idea. Like, Kendall sweats at night. She's a hot sleeper. I mean, she, the kid get, I mean, she just wakes up soaking wet hair. But, y'all, she wants to wear flannel pajamas because they're cute. <laughs> and so she, especially over this weekend, we cleaned out closets. We, you know, switched out the summer clothes for the fall clothes and all that sort of thing. And we have some flannel pajamas or, like, the fleece pants and all this. I'm like, do not put those on. Those are for when it's 30 degrees, and it's not 30 degrees yet, so don't put those pajamas on. But what did she do? Saturday night, we're wearing, like, they weren't the flannel ones, but it was, like, long sleeve, you know, shirt, long sleeve pants. And then she's, like, she, she bundles up in the bed. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I went in there. She was sick over the weekend. I went in to check on her, just soaking wet with sweat. And I'm like, this was such a bad decision. Like, I tried to tell her before she got in bed, that we should not wear the pajamas because you're going to get hot, you're going to sweat, and I'm going to have to come in here, and I, yes, and the coughing and the, with the croup, and it's just not good. But I went in there in the middle of the night, and I changed her clothes and put on her just a little T-shirt, and she came into my room Sunday morning, Mommy, did you change my jammies last night? I'm like, I did, because it was what was best for you. I did. But I gave you what you wanted to begin with. You know, sometimes... I think God turns us over to the desires of our own hearts, even when they are not the best, even when it is not what he wants for us, because he knows that we have to learn things the hard way sometimes in order for the lesson to stick. And so that's what we see here. But he tells them, he tells them. He makes sure they know what they're getting into so that later on they can't say, what happened here? We didn't know it was going to be like this when we had a king. No, he says, mm, you did know. You, it was made quite clear to you beforehand, and this is what it's going to be like. In verse 10, Samuel gives them that long list of things about the king. When we were talking about the homework, about what you'll gain and lose, there wasn't much gain to it. Right? But there was a lot to lose. And when you read through these verses, you see all the things that the king is going to take. He'll take this, and he'll take that, and he'll take, and he'll take, and he'll take. But the people are so desperate for a plan. They're so stuck that this is what they want, and nothing else will do. But they don't care. They're willing, no matter the cost, to do whatever it takes to have this king so we can be like everybody else. They want that so desperately that they're willing to give up 
anything for it. Even what are the things that he's going to take? Your sons are going to go into military service. Your daughters are going to go serve in his household. Your best crops, the best of your fields, you're going to have less food to eat because of this. He's going to take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards to give it to his officers. He'll take your servants, both your male servants and your female servants. He's going to take the best of your young men. Not the weak ones, not the crippled ones, not the sick ones, the best of them. And you're not going to have them anymore to work your fields. You are losing all these things. He's going to take your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Now, what do you think those words would have made Israel think of? They've been slaves before, right? And they did not like it. But he's saying to them, this is what it's going to be like. In that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read through the Bible. But if you get past 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and into like 1 Kings and 2 Kings and the Chronicles and the prophets and all those things, um, how does the kingship work out for Israel in the end? Very, very badly. There are very few good kings in Israel ever throughout the monarchy. They, they just never really have a great one after David and after Solomon, you know, it, it just never works out the way that they thought it would. It's almost like Samuel is a prophet and he knows what's going to happen. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, which funny, that's just what the Lord did for them in chapter seven, but how quickly they forgot how quickly they forgot. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Give them what they want. Give them what they want. I think here, you know, the, the homework had you go back and look in Deuteronomy to read those verses about um, when there will be a king in Israel, when you get to the land and you demand a king like the nations. Um, and it asked whether or not they were wrong. Was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? Because there is provision made for the king in the law. So is it wrong for them to want one? Motivation matters, right? Like doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is still the wrong thing. So God, I think um, what's going on here is... This, I don't know the right way to say it, but it's a terrible kind of mercy. And that um, in letting Kendall wear the long sleeve pajamas, I know what's going to happen. It's a silly example, I know. But I know, I know it's not going to be good in the end. But I let her do it because she needs to learn for herself. And it's the same way with this situation. You know, he is giving them what they want. They want a king, so he's giving them what they want um, to show them the error, the folly of their thinking. It's tough love, right? Like, I love you so much, I'll let you do what you want. And when I read this, um, I can't help but think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Because what did that son want? He had it made, Right? As long as he was in his father's house under his father's rule, life was good. He didn't have anything to complain about. But it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to be like everybody else. So he asked for his inheritance and he left home. And what happened? How'd that turn out for him? Was that good? No. But the father let him go. He let him go. Because in the going, in the squandering, and the hell that followed for that son, he realized that it wasn't the blessings, it wasn't the wealth, it wasn't the things that the father could offer him that mattered, but it was being in the presence of his father where he would find what he truly needed. He missed the father, and so he came back to him. And it's the same thing we see here. You know, Israel is desperate for um, some kind of assurance of their future that they can see. 
And I think with the kingship and, and the guidelines set forth in Deuteronomy, you know, it says you will ask for a king like the nations. But then if you read those guidelines, did it sound like a king like the nations? I mean, it said the king shall take the words of this law and shall read them every day, right? And that doesn't sound like a king like the nations. The king that God, the kingship that God had set up was one in which the king was subject to the Lord and where the king followed the Lord's ways. And so I think you see in all of this, God making provision for his fickle people, whereas they lose a bit of their faith, but he does not neglect them in this faithless moment. It's true that he gives them over to the desires of their own heart and that it doesn't necessarily turn out well for them, but he doesn't leave them there. You know, he doesn't, which we'll see when we get into this next chapter with Saul and, and Samuel anointing them. Like, by all accounts, Saul is apparently not a good dude because everybody's surprised when he's prophesying and filled with the Spirit, right? I mean, he sends his Spirit upon Saul and he gives him what he needs to do the job that he has set before him, okay? So it's not as if God leaves them completely helpless in this. Um, he makes provision. And even when we are weak, even when our faith is less than strong, God is still being faithful and he's still acting to bring about his good purpose, even if it's not a straight route to get there. You know, sometimes, and you probably know this from your own life, you take a wandering path to, to realize the truth. And you can only see it in hindsight, right? That's the, that's the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, where you can see the Lord's hand at work all along. But you had to learn the hard way that he was faithful and that he was going to be there for you. And so that's where we are now. They demand a king. And so then we zoom in on this one family who is very different from the one family that we zoomed in on in chapter 1, right? It says, There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And we think, yes, he's got money. Because all kings have money, right? Um, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. So he looks good, literally, like he's hot. <laughs> Everybody likes this guy. He was handsome. There was, and then as if, you know, in case you missed it the first time, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He's a looker. <laughs> he looks the part. He looks the part. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. He stood head and shoulders above the rest, literally. Now, I can tell you that um, being a tall person, Rebecca can probably, um, that you stand out in a crowd. <laughs> like you're taking your team pictures and there's like everybody else and then here you are. And sometimes I forget that I'm so tall until I take a picture with one of my shorter friends and I'm like, <laughs> leaned way over and they're <laughs> standing straight up. Or if I take a picture with my sweet mother who is five foot two, it just looks weird. Okay. So Tall people stand out. <laughs> they just do. But when you're thinking about, um, like, a military leader, think about, like, all those action heroes over the years or, you know. I mean, like, what do they look like? That's right. <laughs> Good answers. They're tall. They're dark and handsome, right? Um, <laughs> what about, like, actual political leaders? What about George Washington? What do you know about him? Hmm? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, all political associations aside, he was a tall guy. And also, actually, yeah, not about the hair. He didn't really have the, he didn't have the dark and handsome part down, but he is 6'2". He is tall. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's okay. That's okay. Um, we like tall leaders. We just do. Like there's something commanding about a man who is tall and strong. Um, 
it gives us confidence, right? Like, it's not just us. I mean, like, we probably wouldn't say that. Like, we don't necessarily think that with our minds. <laughs> but when that guy walks on the screen in the movie, like, you know he's the hero, right? As opposed to, like, the skinny guy who's short, you know. Saul looks like a king. He is the guy. Like, if you want, if you're going to make a poster, <laughs> he's the guy who would be on it. And he's wealthy. He's got money. And so what happens here, I'm not going to read all of this because um, there's a lot there. But what happens is that you see God working through ordinary events, everyday things, to bring about his purposes. So even though... <laughs> Even though God was not happy with their decision, their demand for a king, he is still involved in the process of giving them a king. This Saul is God's choice for Israel. And so even when we continue reading and like Saul gives in to his humanity and the end of his kingship is just not good, it doesn't change the fact that God chose him for Israel for a reason. And so he's using these ordinary events to bring Saul to Samuel so that he can be anointed. So the donkeys get lost. They go chasing after the donkeys all over Israel. They can't find them anywhere. They go see. I see that. You can't. <laughs> you can't unthink it. You cannot unthink that King James language. They end up going to see Samuel. Right. And they meet Samuel. And what does Samuel tell him? Well, Samuel knows that Saul's coming, right? Because God has told him so in verse 15. It says the day before Saul came. So in all of these things, the lost donkeys, the wandering around, not knowing where to go, the idea that, hey, maybe we should go see this seer guy. All of that is the Lord's hand at work. The Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince. Did you notice that? It says prince does not say king to be prince over my people Israel he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people for their cry has come to me so you know it's not a small thing that the word prince is used there I think it's intentional the details matter you know the people are demanding a king and God is setting up a prince for them because even though he is giving them what they want he is still king God is still king in Israel He will provide for them what they are asking for. But this king, in quotation marks, is still subject to him. He is a regent of the king. Um, In a way, he will serve the true king, but he is not the king himself. And that matters. I'll set him up to be prince over my people. Why? He had purposes for Saul. What was it? One, to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. I will use him to deliver my people from their enemies. And the other thing that he will do for them is what? And how did you look it up in um, NIV as well? He, he will govern the Lord's people, right? Um, he will rule over them. That is, those are the two purposes that God sets up for Saul, for what he will do for them. Okay, so... When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Like, poor Saul. I mean, Samuel knows what's up. You know, God has told him beforehand, This guy is coming. You're going to anoint him. He's, he's going to be the king. And Saul is just looking for some donkeys. <laughs> like, he, does, he doesn't have a clue. Like, totally and completely clueless. He doesn't even know who Samuel is. Like, I would think that Samuel had quite a reputation by this time. He would be well-known. And so he walks up to the well-known prophet of the Lord, and it's like, hey, do you know where the seer is? And Samuel's like, actually? Huh? Well, Samuel answered it. Now, the servant told him that there was a seer in this city, which, I mean, you should have known. Right? Like, you should have known that this well-known prophet of the Lord lives this close to you. But um, he didn't. He didn't know that. And he also didn't know who Samuel was. So Samuel's like, it's me. I'm the seer. And he tells him to go to the high place because 
he has got plans for him. For today, you will eat with me in the morning. I'll let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. By the way, the donkeys have been found. Don't need to worry about that anymore. And then he says this weird stuff about, like, honoring your family. And Saul's like, what are you talking about? I'm looking for some donkeys. But I'm glad they're found. I just came looking for donkeys. Didn't come for anything else. But he looks at them. And he's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm nobody special. I'm just this guy. And why, have you, why are you saying these things? Why are you talking to me like this? Verse 22, Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. So not only is he eating with Samuel, but he's sitting at the head of the table, which, I mean, like flags should be going off in Saul's head, like what, what's going on here? Some, I mean, I don't know what's happening right now. So it had to have been this awkward, confusing, like, what, <laughs> what's going on moment for Saul. And you can tell he was kind of flustered by everything that was happening because of the way that he reacts. So he sits him at the head of the table, about 30 people. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg that was on it and set them before Saul. Not only is he sitting at, sitting at the head of the table, but he also gets this portion which in your homework, you had us look up the verse in Leviticus, right? That is typically reserved for the priests. It was a portion that has special significance for the priest of the Lord. And so what I think we are meant to conclude from this is that Saul is about to be anointed. And as king over Israel, he will rule over even the priests. So even the, even the priesthood is subject to his rule. Now he is subject to the Lord, But even the priest in Israel will serve him. That is the point. See, this has been kept as before you eat it, because it was kept until the hour appointed that you may eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And so Saul went out doing this ordinary thing, this errand that his father sent him on, and it turns out to be pivotal for his life. Because what we'll see in this next chapter is that in this very private moment, in this private ceremony between Samuel and Saul, he is anointed to be Israel's leader, to be their king. And he, here he is thinking he's just an ordinary guy, right? But everything changes for Saul from that point on. Everything is different. It says, verse 10, 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince? There's that word again. Over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So those are those two purposes again. You will reign, you will save them from their enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And he names three things, right? Three things that are going to happen. He is going to meet two men near the tomb of Rachel who are going to tell him that the donkeys have been found, right? The second thing, he's going to meet three men. I think, yep, three men who are on their way to Bethel to worship. And they are carrying with them three donkeys, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. These would have been the sacrifices that they're going to make at Bethel. But what do they do? They take some of the bread that is meant for the sacrifice, and they give it to Saul. And so you see again this anointing coming into effect, that he's the chosen one of the Lord, and he is partaking of these special things um, that have been set aside for the one of the Lord. So that's the other thing. And then the third thing is that you will be filled near Gibeath Elohim with the Spirit, and you will prophesy, right? So, I'm sorry, y'all. I just can't get over how mind-blowing this must have been for Saul. Like, what has happened here? Because he had no concept that, that when he left his home that day, that this is what's going to happen. And, and then as if to confirm all these, you know, like, this is real. You are the anointed. I'm not just saying it. Like, I'm not just some guy, you know. I'm going to prove it to you, 
I'm going to confirm this calling by telling you these three things that are going to happen. Right? And so what happens? It happens exactly like Saul, Samuel says it's going to. I'm, I'm going to get them confused. Saul, Samuel. It happens exactly the way that Samuel says it will, doesn't it? And when we get to that portion um, in verse 7, it says, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. But it told us before then in verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man. And then when we read in verse 9, it says, He turned his back to leave Samuel, and God gave him another heart. Do you remember what some of the other translations said about that verse? Or if you look at question number 23, how did you write it? He changed him. He gave him another heart, yeah. Mm-hmm. He transformed him. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, especially when we keep reading and we see the kind of man that Saul turned out to be. A lot of speculation about what these verses mean. Because we we use phrases like this, right, to talk about salvation. To say that, um, you know, it's new creation language in a way for us. But that's not necessarily what's happening here. And I don't think we have to decide. You know, like this is maybe not Saul's salvation moment. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know, but it's maybe not. It doesn't have to be. This is the same kind of language that um, God uses and judges to talk about, say, Gideon or Samson, people who he is filling with the Spirit for a specific task and a specific purpose. He is enabling them and changing them and making them able to do what it is that he has set before them for a special purpose, a special task. Okay, And so that is what's happening here. Um, is that Saul is being prepared for this calling that has been set upon him. It's not a calling that he chose, and it's obviously one that's out of character for him, because if we keep reading in verse 11, it says, When all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to another, What is going on here? Did you see Saul? What's happening? Is he a prophet? What kind of alternate universe are we living in? Because Saul does not do things like that. And yet he did. And a man of the place answered, and who's their father? He's basically saying, what's the matter? He's of no consequence. He's no big deal. He doesn't matter. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And it's interesting, y'all, that when we get to the end of this little section, Saul's uncle is talking to him. He's asking everything that happened. And he tells him, kind of, everything that happened. But he leaves out some important information, right? He doesn't tell him about the anointing. He doesn't tell him all the things that Samuel said to him um, and what is going to happen really in the future. And it's almost like there's this sense that, like, maybe if I don't say it out loud, it won't be real. You know? Maybe if I just pretend that didn't happen. Right? Maybe I can act like that didn't happen and nobody else knows. And so it's not going to happen. Everything's going to be okay. But that's not how it is, is it? I mean, Saul is chosen, and he is confirmed. All these things have come to pass that Samuel said will come to pass, but he was still very unsure of what that meant, Um, and so very human. And I think we are meant to see the contrast here between Saul as king and God as king, because he is very unsure about what's going to happen. And when we keep reading, you know, when Samuel again calls all of Israel together and this private thing that has happened, this private anointing is made public, where is Saul? He's hiding. He is scared. He cannot be found. And that's the king that Israel has chosen. That's the king who is set before them. But let's back up. So why do you think, one of the questions was, if Saul has already been anointed in private, if he has already technically chosen as king, why the public ceremony? Why the casting of lots and everything? Why do you think? Some of it, I think, is due process, because this is how they did things. Yeah. But also, um, for Samuel, 
you know, he had previously chosen the next leaders, and that did not go well. And so this time, he's going to do it the public way, and so that they can not blame him. You know, so you picked this king for us. What were you thinking? And so it's going to be this, you chose this, you did this kind of moment, whereas here's the king that you chose. Okay? So... Verse 17, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. I am your deliverer. Now, these words would have been very familiar to them, or they should have been, at least, because they're the words that were given at Mount Sinai to Moses. Before the Ten Commandments were given, Exodus chapter 19, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You shall be my treasured possession. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he goes on in chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord. I am your king. I am your deliverer. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. You have chosen this. This was your choice. It's me saying to Kendall again, not the best choice, kid. Think again. But he's reminding them, you have chosen this okay so it brings out all the tribes and it's narrowed down and it's narrowed down and it's narrowed down and it's narrowed down and when it comes down to it and there's only the one guy left and they can't find him anywhere um they ask is there anybody else like where is he what's going on here and the lord answers them and says behold he has hidden himself among baggage like he's hiding I'm here, by the way, but he's hiding somewhere. He cannot be found. So they ran and they took him from there. Now, you would think, like, that might be an embarrassing moment, right? Or, like, should maybe set off some alarm bells? But do they seem bothered by it? No. What are their words? (laughs) They ran and they took him from there. And again, here we are. And when he stood among the people... He was taller than any other of the people from his shoulders upward. They don't care that he was hiding because he looks like what they wanted. And they had to know because, I mean, we know, right? We, we know who the rich people are in our circles, right? Like, you know who has money. You know who struggles. Like, you know this. We just do. We know these things about each other. So they would have known what kind of family he came from. And they're looking at him. They're like, oh, man, he's awesome. Look how tall he is. And he's strong. And he's handsome. And he's rich. This is going to be amazing. This is the king that we want. And so you see here some of the people are okay with it. Some of them aren't. Some of them follow him. Some of them are a little unsure. Um... But even here, you see Samuel, again, trying to protect them from themselves, writing down all the duties of the kingship. He's, he's trying to make provision, even in the midst of this, um, for it to be okay. It says, Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. And he went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went... Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. So God raises up people to go with Saul and to help him in these tasks that he has set before him. But, um, man, what a day in Israel that was. And it's supposed to be like this great day, inauguration day. You know, what if on the inauguration day of our presidents, the guy like holding the Bible, as he's swearing him and it's like, this is not a good idea. What if that's how it was? Wouldn't that just put some fear in your heart about what's to, I mean, like, aside from a, oh my goodness, I can't believe he said that. 
but uh, oh, it must be real bad for that to happen. Um, so I think the question for us is, well, what does that mean for us? You know, what where where what does the story about all this that happened in Israel have to do with us? And I think from all of it, you can see. Um, you know, several things to learn. I think in the beginning, in that chapter 7, where we were, um, you can see the effects of real, true faith, of repentance and trusting the Lord, uh, and that when we do that, He will give us victory. The Lord gives us victory over our enemies. The Lord alone, He is King. And when we trust Him to do His job, He will do it in a way in which um, he will be glorified always. And he is everything that we need. God is what we need, always. He is the answer to everything. But I think the other thing you can see is that um, when we lose our faith, not like you don't believe in God anymore, but you're just having a little bit of trouble understanding how the future is going to go, or maybe you're just having a weak moment or doubt I mean, we all have doubts sometimes. I think you can see here from this that God makes provision for our doubts, for our lack of trust, and that just because we are at times faithless, God is always faithful. It does not mean that he will stop being faithful. He is still faithful to his people. Um, even when we have a hard time seeing the way forward, um, He still provides. Um, you know, God is the only King that we need, but when we are weak, because we all are, He will do what is necessary to bring us back to Him. And sometimes what is necessary is that tough kind of love that we talked about, right? Um, he is faithful always to His people. And he is merciful. He does not leave us in our weakness, but he does what is necessary to bring us back to him. So when we read things like this in the Old Testament, I think it's um, important to, um, you know, we always try to place ourselves in the story, right? But it's important to remember that, you know, we're not necessarily the hero. We're not necessarily the main character in the story, but we're the ordinary people. You know, we're just like all the common Israelites that were out there, right? They are us in the story. We are them. And in these passages, we can see that they're scared and they're worried about the future. On one occasion, they trust the Lord, but it doesn't necessarily follow through for every single occasion. So you can see that even though they are faithful, even though they want to do what's right, they are so human, and they think they have the perfect solution to their problem. And we do this, whether we like to admit it or not. When things don't go our way or when the future is uncertain, when we don't know what in the world God is doing here, um, we all come up with those ideas of what we think are best. God, if you will just give me this job. God, if you will just give me this baby. Lord, if you would just do this, then this, then everything will be good. It'll be like the way it's supposed to be. Everything will be just right. And once they have their mind made up, at least in this story, like they will not accept any other option, right? And so I think it's important to remember that when we're scared and uncertain, we have that same kind of tendency to like fix it, to come up with a solution to the problem. And we sometimes get so set on what we think needs to happen that we can't imagine any other way as being better. We cannot fathom um, that maybe something else would be better. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis, which apparently I'm on a Lewis kick because I read from Narnia last week, but it's in The Weight of Glory. It's just a talk that he gave. Um, but this has stuck with me for a long time about our longings and the desires of our hearts. And this is what it says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are often so quick to settle for the good instead of the best that God has for us. We think we know what's best, but maybe what we really need instead of that thing that we have just made our minds up would make everything perfect, would make everything right, maybe what we really need is a dose of humility and less assurance that our plans are the right plans, our ways are the right ways, and that if this would just happen, then everything would be good, and more dependence on God's, less prayers for specific things, more prayers for changes of heart, more prayers for um, direction, for God to be glorified, for him to make his will known, for courage to do what it takes to follow the Lord's will in the midst of doing what is easy or would make us just like everyone else. And that comes to the second thing, is that they want to be like everyone else. That's the heart of their problem, is that it's hard to be a person of faith in a world that is dead set against it. It is hard. And they have forgotten who they are. And if we're being honest, then we know that it's easy to fall into that trap because we all want to be like everyone else every now and then. We want people to like us. Who likes it when people disagree with you? Or who likes it when your beliefs are trashed in the media or on TV? Or when you're made to look like an ignorant fool for believing this old book? Nobody likes that. Um, and so what you, see some, what you see happening in some ways is that in some strands of Christianity, you see people um, compromising different aspects of the faith in order to be more like everyone else. Um, they're, they're compromising their beliefs so that they don't have to be so different. And that is not what we're called to. We are called to be different. You know, no matter how desperately we want the American dream or we want to be like everyone else or we don't want people to dislike us and all those things, we forget sometimes that God hasn't called us to be comfortable and he hasn't called us to be like everybody else, but that he has called us to be his. He has called us to be different to be set apart for our good and for his glory. Now that might make some things uncomfortable in very real and practical ways when it comes to making decisions as a family um, about the things that your family will do or you won't do, about the entertainment that you follow, the decisions you make regarding the way you spend your money or the way you spend your time or the things that you're going to do or not do. All of those little decisions that we make every single day point to who is ruling our lives, what is ruling our lives. And we have an obligation as believers to subject those things to the Lord and to know that as his people, as his chosen people, we are going to be different from the world because we're supposed to be that we are supposed to be marked by our differences so that our differences can point to Jesus. That's the point, that he might be glorified. And then the other thing, the last thing I think here, is that in their story we see how easy it is to forget. I mean, even in our own lives, you know, there have been times when we can probably all name specific instances where you knew that God had been faithful to you, where you experienced his goodness and his mercy in a very real way. And yet, sometimes, 10 years down the road, in a different situation, it's hard to remember when the test results come back or the car accident happens or someone you love passes away. It's hard to remember that the God who was faithful then is still faithful now. He has not changed. So let us be a people who remember 
what God has done for us, to rehearse those things, to say them out loud, not just knowing it in your heart, but sharing it with your family, teaching it to your children of saying, this is how God has been good. God is not just good in general, but he is good to us. And this is how he is good to us. Let's talk about these things. Because as much as we would, it's easy to look at them and think, how could they forget? Well, it wasn't intentional. It just happened little by little over the years as the things slipped away from one generation to the next. And I don't want that for my kids. I want my legacy to be different. I want to be one whose life points to Jesus always. That our lives should proclaim the gospel. The goodness of God in good times and in bad times. And trusting Him. And giving my plans to Him. And, and, and surrendering them. Sacrificing them at His altar. And saying, you know what God? Your way. I want your way. Because even when we can't see a better way or the way through or the way out, it does not mean that God can't. He knows always because he's king. He's sovereign over everything. If there's nothing else you learn from 1 Samuel, learn that. God is king. There is no other king. There is no other God beside him. He is God, and he will not share that throne with another. He wouldn't share it back then, and he won't share it now.